0: This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association, and I'm your host on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Every now and then on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, we address particular themes or topics that are currently relevant to communication research, and today is one of those days. Our episode today focuses on the concept or theme or critical methods surrounding Afrofuturism. We're going to look at some definitions of what Afrofuturism is all about examples of Afrofuturism, the importance of Afrofuturism, and particularly how Afrofuturism can be incorporated into the communication classroom. And we're lucky to have with us two experts in this particular domain of human understanding, Afrofuturism. Professors Reynaldo Anderson and Lonnie J. Brooks join me today to discuss this important topic. First, a bit more about today's guests. Reynaldo Anderson is a Communication Studies and Africana Studies scholar who currently serves as an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Harris Stowe State University. Reynaldo is currently the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Black Speculative Arts Movement, or BSAM, an international network of artists, intellectuals, creatives, and activists. Reynaldo is the author of the Black Speculative Arts Movement, Black Futurity, Art Plus Design, and numerous other works on Afrofuturism, including Afrofuturism, The Visual Imagery of Kanye West, a chapter in a book entitled The Cultural Impact of Kanye West. Anderson is also the co-editor of Afrofuturism 2.0, The Rise of Astro Blackness with Charles E. Jones, and is the co-editor of The Lovecraft Country Reader, which is forthcoming in 2021. Hi, Ronaldo, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Hello, how are you doing?
1: Lonnie J. Avi Brooks is an associate professor of strategic communication at California State University, East Bay. Dr. Brooks researches in the areas of Afrofuturism and futurist studies, is the co-principal investigator for the Long-Term and Futures Thinking and Education Project, and is producer and co-creator of the Afrofuturist podcast with Ahmed Best. Brooks is currently working on a book titled Working in the Future Tense at Futureland, Circulating Afrofuture Types of Work, Culture, and Racial Identity. Brooks is the co-organizer of the Black Speculative Arts Movement Oakland Symposium Film Festival with none other than Rinaldo Anderson. So hi, Lonnie, and thanks for joining us on Communication Matters. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, for our listeners who may not know what Afrofuturism is all about, and I include myself in that category, I'm curious how you you both might define this growing area of study. What do we mean when we use the term Afrofuturism?
2: Okay, I would say in layman's terms, a way of talking about it, and I was just talking about this with the um, past president of NCA, Ron Jackson, last night. You can think of it as just a way for a people of African descent to culturally locate themselves in time with respect to technology and society. And then within dimensions that include philosophy, aesthetics, social science, applied science, and community activities. And that's a real straightforward, simple way of thinking about it in terms of how it's explored in this current contemporary wave of Afrofuturism, which we call 2.0 or the second wave that's emerged since it's popular emergence in the last 25, 30 years.
1: So how has Afrofuturism changed since the term or the concept was first coined in the 1990s? Have they changed because of technology? How have they changed over time? I mean, that's almost 30 they, years well, now.
2: Well, the first, what they coined back in the early 90s, uh, two principal people that described what they saw in relation to black artists, intellectuals, Mark Derry, and Mark Sinker in the early nineties. And what they described and were discussing was actually a body of knowledge that had been existing since, at least in the United States, dating back to the middle of the 19th century, which would have been black speculative thoughts, which as a tradition emerges parallel to the emergence of modern science fiction whereas the focus of Black speculative thought was much more concentrated and focused on the liberation of people of African descent in relation to their social circumstances in the mid-19th century, whereas science fiction emerges as a body of knowledge and literature in relation to changes in the emerging modern science, modernity, the industrial revolution. So they kind of emerge on parallel tracks kind of segregated each other with different missions and focuses, but sometimes with a little bit of overlap. And some of the key figures that go back to the middle of the 19th century are people like, in his literary form, you're talking about people like Martin Delaney, who wrote a book called Hut, which dealt with the idea of a slave revolution in terms of the need for people of African descent to establish their own nation state. And in a way, that speculative idea of thinking about revolution, because for someone who's an enslaved African, freedom was like science fiction. So that's where that Black speculative tradition is unique from the European model of science fiction. Now, in the last 30 years, Mark Derry coined the term Afrofuturism in an interview with Greg Tate, Tricia Rose, and Samuel Delaney, the science fiction writer, and he talks about it as a speculative production of African Americans. But what's changed is one of the things that I wrote about several years ago was that as of 2005, because of social media, the social media revolution, that it had become a planetary paradigm in terms of transnational or pan Africanism origins. And I also added the caveat that its origins come out of Africana Studies or what people used to call Black Studies because people like key contributors to this body of knowledge, like people like Sun Ra famously gives lectures at the Black Studies Department at Berkeley for a semester teaching some courses. And this is during the same time that the scholar Nathaniel Huggins establishes Africana Studies at San Francisco State University around the same time in the Bay Area. So the Bay Area at that time, was particularly interesting in terms of you had ideas from the Black Panther Party, ideas related to the space race, ideas related to music and philosophy that cross pollinated. And there was a famous disagreement between Sun Ra and members of the Black Panther Party, which some people have written about, but you can say in the United States as an institutional expression, it starts out there in the Bay Area. And now it is a planetary expression philosophically with several different dimensions. Some people, we wrote about 2.0, but other people, particularly in Europe, I've seen an article, I believe it's in one of the journals now, where they take the concept that I develop and try to juxtapose it with Sheila Bemba, the philosopher's idea of Afropolitanism. And I debated some people on that a couple of years ago during a tour of some schools in Europe. And and you have other people that try and take it uh, more recently or try and blend it with an LGBTQIA plus perspective in terms of how it deals with the future. And one of the things I've always argued is that it adapts, it adapts, depending on social context, geography to whatever people, their social circumstances are, for example, An Afro-Caribbean population might take a different twist on it than say an African-American would, or people in Nigeria. And we have a chapter in Nigeria, they'll look at it from their perspective or South Africa with the scholars we work with in South Africa. So it's kind of a discussion that's going back and forth across what uh, Paul Gilroy called the Black Atlantic. What's exciting now is you're seeing uh, Afro-Brazilians embracing the concept. But it's really picked up speed the last two and a half years, ever since the appearance of the Panther phenomenon. So whereas before Panther was more of a kind of an underground thing, and now the last 24 months has gone into several different directions in terms of how people deal with it in relation to technology, philosophy, and social movement.
1: We did a Communication Matters episode looking at a special issue of one of our journals that featured essays about Black Panther Mm. and the Black Panther phenomenon. And several of those essays made reference to the Afrofuturistic dimensions to the Black Panther narrative and complicating that and talking about how all that works. Are there other notable real examples like, you know, specific texts that people can, can turn to? I'm thinking of a speculative or alternative history that I read one time a while ago that sort of flipped the entire slavery narrative such that Northern Europeans were the slaves and African
2: plantation
1: owners. I forget what it was called, but.
2: Sounds like Stephen Barnes's work. Yes. Which is called, know, the name of the book escapes me right about, but that's a, that's Stephen Barnes there. What, and that book is based upon an alternative history. Right if the Moors had conquered Europe and North America was divided between the Moorish Empire and the Aztec Empire. And so it becomes, it's an interesting alternative history that uh, right. I think is an interesting movie series. And, and there are other uh, varying examples. Misi Shaw has one out that uh, really looks at a steampunk perspective of, of the uh, Kingdom of Congo. And, you know, what would have happened if they'd had modern weapons to deal with King Leopold? In terms of what that might have looked like. And so there are a lot of different types of uh, alternative histories that people are playing with now in relation to literature that have exploded the last several years using an Afrofuturistic model and from this new perspective. But in terms of, I would strongly suggest for people that are looking at it from a scholarly perspective, there are about four or five books that I think have the best information on it. The uh, special issue that obsidian published about four or five years ago that run an award that was edited by sheree renee thomas she was a guest editor for that also the topia journal which is uh the canadian journal of cultural studies tobias van veen and myself co-edited that and it's in the introduction with the chapter for that that uh we make the argument you can say that uh there is legitimately such a thing as Afro, a field of Afrofuturist studies now mm-hmm. uh, that, that that has emerged the last five years because of the body of work. And I think as one of the scholars in Johannesburg brought to my attention, the uh, co-edited anthology that we published five years ago, Afrofuturism 2.0 and the Rise of astral Blackness, several of the South African scholars were looking at that book as kind of like is comparable to what um, Elaine Locke's book, The New Negro, that came out during the Harlem Renaissance. Huh. yeah. Uh, making the argument that the 2.0 book is a, one of the first serious academic expression of the post-colonial, post-civil rights generation that has no memory of the civil rights movement, no memory of the colonial movement. And so now it's uh, going in certain directions. And that's where Lonnie, his chapter that he contributed was one of the first ones that combines Afrofuturism with uh, the training of someone that had been working in future studies.
1: Uh-huh. And Lonnie, that's a great segue because one of the terms or dynamics of all of this that you have coined is this idea of an Afrofuture type. And can you tell us what that means and what that's about and why Afrofuture types are significant or a significant approach to futurist studies and Afrofuturism?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I coined a couple of terms, including Afrofuture types, but the first one is what I call future types that trace the circulating science fiction capital that are filled with promises of the future that can simultaneously constrain and unleash our imaginations and Afro future types are what I call black signals of the future that find and reclaim the traces of black cultural visions alongside erasers of those signals. So, you know, for instance, I like to go back to this, you know, historical significance of the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma tragedy from 1921, where you had the Black Greenwood neighborhood that was just, you know, a couple of generations outside of slavery, and it had been a prosperous black community with its own stores, its own economy. And because of a trumped up charge of a black man assaulting a white woman, a mob descended on this neighborhood and basically obliterated it and bombed it from the air. You know, I I just learned about this a couple of years ago and, you know, it's just, just shocking to see, you know how the survivors were marched off to a concentration camp basically and the neighborhood never, regained its glory, it, you know, came back a little bit in the 40s and 50s, but, you know, never quite had the same veneer and glamour and innovation that it had had at the beginning. So I call that an Afro-Future type, you know, a signal where you see this prosperous community ascending and then obliterated and erased. And it's similar to the film Hidden Figures that highlights these NASA black women, you know, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists who, you know, we, we would never have heard about them, you know, unless you read the book, but then you see the film and then you realize, wow, this was happening. You know, yeah. they were charting the trajectory of our journey into space, right? And so that's what I also call an Afrofuture type as well, you know, tracing those signals and also kind of going back to Afrofuturism too, as well is it re-narrativizes the middle passage journey, You know, where basically it's a science fiction horror story. Right. Where you're taking folks from West Africa, their home world, with the latest in apocalyptic bondage technologies, kidnapping them and taking millions of Africans to the new world in the Americas, which is like an alien world, you know, where they could be killed if they spoke their language and then had this religion of Christianity imposed upon them where they had to innovate. They had to create, they took Psalms from Christianity, transformed them into spirituals of liberation, right? Those, those spirituals are what scholars call sonic utopias that speak to a future that's uncolonized, free, and like the, the Wakanda that we envisioned in the Black Panther movie, uh-huh. you know? And, you know, I really go back to that too. And also the Black Panther Party itself to correlate with the Black Panther film. If we look at what the Black Panther Party was espousing in the 60s of free education right. against the incarceration of Black men for universal education for reparations and recomp you know compensation, that doesn't seem so radical right now, right? Right, right. But <laughs> and yet that's that's also an Afro future type signal to right. look into, to reclaim and augment. And to juxtapose against the black panther film you know it's a commoditized version of that vision through the marvel (laughs) universe right problematic you know in the sense of its alignment with the cia which has undermined (laughs) several african governments you know right right uh, and undermined you know the intelligence agency that undermined the black panther party itself with the introduction of drugs into the black community you know so so these are what i call afro future types and just really thinking that black people have always been futurists. And um, I'm also contributing a chapter in the Handbook of Social Futures, Imagining uh, Queer Futures with Afrofuturism. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, really interested in how basically we augment our visions of the future using Afrofuturism, showing that queer people really owe a debt you know, to the Black legacy. The current jack shows, you know, owe their legacy to to Black traditions and things of that sort. You know, queer folks learn their tactics for peaceful demonstrations and otherwise from the Black community. So there's a real, you know, connection and a a history, a hidden history too of Black Afro queer liberation and alliances. So I think, you know, that's also part of Afro future types.
1: Do you think that applies to other subaltern groups as well or groups that have sought to achieve liberation beyond queer audiences? Like I'm thinking of the Latino, you know, the farm workers movement or the Chicano movement in the in the 70s. If they they drew on a lot of those those same resources or even the women's movement you know there's all sorts of wonder woman right there's all sorts of futuristic visions of a largely matriarchal society yeah are there similarities are there connections between these different kinds of futurisms i guess
0: well in particular now you know what i'm involved in and partly because i'm also native american is indigenous futurism there is a whole renaissance of native americans reclaiming their voices you know you you see that even in the present with The, you know, there's this ride to vote on horseback in Arizona to vote for Joe Biden because the nearest post office was miles away and people were getting on horseback and riding, you know, and there's a renaissance of indigenous native science fiction, especially with the publication of Grace Dillon's Walking on the Clouds Mm -mm. that, you know, it looks at this notion of the slipstream, which is similar to african and black diasporic notions of time you know where the past present and future slip into each other are simultaneously and happening at once and so i'm really inspired by those movements and certainly you know the latinx and women's movement also found alliances and correlations with the black movement for freedom and 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 speculative visions too i mean i think there's a deep history there i mean i'm a testament to that i'm black jewish native american my parents came together in the sixties when it was illegal to, 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 to have that type of marriage, you know? So, so I, you know, I owe my debt to their collective vision of what could be possible. Yeah. How do students respond
1: to Afrofuturism? Uh, What texts do you have them look at beyond the ones that you've mentioned? How can this work in the contemporary classroom? And I, I would just say real quickly, I think a lot of the folks, uh, scholars and teachers of communication are looking for ways to bring anti-racism ideas and concepts into their into their classrooms. And, uh, you know, from across the spectrum, I'm wondering if you have any advice that you can give us. <laughs>
2: In the 2.0 volume, there is a chapter there devoted to communication studies. So we do deal with communication and juxtaposing communicology as more of a dialogic kind of um, uh, tension there in the scholarship showing how communications can work with Afrofuturism dialogically. Now, as I was talking with Alani, like if I take communication theory, my choice is to, to build upon Asante's meta theory of afrocentricity, which deals with dislocation, location, and so forth, and it works very well with afrofuturists within that framework, you know, and so other people have a tendency to adapt it to their own academic silo you know i I would say that one of the things I was talking about we're going to probably have to put something like this for communication scholars because in the last twenty four months, a lot of people two years ago, if you look at their CV, there was nothing related to Afrofuturism in it. And then the last 18 months is starting to kind of, you know, and, and people like Lonnie and myself have put almost a decade in this. And there are a lot of people that need to do a little bit more reading. So we're talking, we probably need to put some type of primer together, you know, that walks people through it. Because right now, I mean, even though I'm at a small school, I've had to sit on several graduate committees at research level one as an outside expert because faculty at the school didn't really have a, a good understanding of what Afrofuturism was. And so I'm on a couple of committees up in Canada. also. Oh, wow. And I'm excited about its development so far. Cause I, as I've told Lonnie, I think some of the best communication scholars now are the young emerging ones that are either recently got their PhDs or they're graduate students now. Uh-huh. So Lonnie and I have to get it in while we can still <laughs> do it because they're ready to get going on some of these concepts and, and take it even further than what we've done in the last several years. So it's there for those people. And as a head nod to what you're saying, um, for example, now we even have a, a chapter of BSAM in Australia so we're looking at the Aboriginal people's concept of dream time in terms of what that looks yeah. like in dialogue with Afro-futurism. Last summer, we were supposed to have the event and COVID threw all of that off now, but um, it's kind of out there now. So it's just going to keep growing. And, and, uh, and I think the way it engages also with certain Asian perspectives around metaphysics and communication, in an intercultural way that we kind of are looking at, there's a chapter dealing, looking at this Afro-Asiatic take on it of time and space in relation to the Lovecraft Country series uh-huh. that was aired recently. That'll be in the Lovecraft Country reader volume that's coming out. That's, that's really excited to see. That'll probably be one of the first ones, uh, but there are only about two or three scholars, uh, Myung Kim and Alex, I don't know why I can't think of his last name, are probably the two best people doing the work at looking at this relationship between this Asian perspective and the Afrofuturist take on it in terms of how it engages other concepts of time and space culturally.
0: Now, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to announce too that Tobias Van Veen and I, with you know the support of Ronaldo Anderson, who's on our advisory board for this, we're gonna come out with a series with Lexington books called Afrofuturism and Other Suns Studies and speculative cultures, which Lovecraft Country will be coming out of that series as well, as well as another anthology on imagining queer futures, queer Afro futures, that is. And I have to say a couple of things about resources. I mean, you know, reading Octavia Butler's novels like Parable of the Sower, Kindred, um, and the graphic adaptations of those with John Jennings as the illustrator are tremendous resources too, along with, you know, Nedia Corfor's books like Binti and an Akata. And I think utilizing all forms of media is really great. In particular, I've co-created a game called Afro-Rhythms from the Future. And it's huh. a take on algorithms, R-I-T-H-M-S. So it's ap- Afro-Rhythms. But the idea that we're immersed in and surrounded by algorithms on our platforms and computers every day, and that we need, we need an artificial intelligence with African soul you know? And that's where Afro rhythms from the future takes that idea and envisions future metaverses that are populated with objects. So we have like, you know, a couple of tensions that define a universe, like what does the world look like with, with less white supremacy and more black storytelling and populate that universe with objects from the future. It could be from 2030, 2040, you know, 2100. But the idea is to use this game to generate ideas with a more afrocentric perspective and black indigenous, and people of color perspective as well. Huh. So I really highly recommend you know using that type of game to illustrate some ideas of Afrofuturism. We have a website, it's afrorhythms.com okay. or afrorhythmsfromthefuture.org and I'm just happy to say, you know, so Ahmed Best, the co-creator, of is a co-designer of that game with me, along with Eli Kozminsky. So we're playing with various organizations right now, including SUNY Buffalo Upcoming, as well. So that's a part of a curriculum because what Ronaldo has inspired in me too, is with especially another great exhibit that was in twenty fifteen, but that scholars should go back to and use for their classes, is Unveiling Visions: The Alchemy of the Black Imagination. That Ronaldo and John Jennings were the co curators of at the Schomburg center for black research in new york and i mean i continually go back to that exhibition like i want to buy all the art of that it's a radical black visions of of the future and i keep going back to that exhibition there's also one now rinaldo should speak to called curating the end of the world and ahmed and i are going to you know co-create the last exhibition in spring for that but i mean that's just really what i love about afrofuturism is that it hits your mind body and soul it's aesthetic in nature the future is not going to be a maoist gray jacket future you know it's going to celebrate black joy it's going to celebrate black visions of the future it's going to put soul into that future and if anything that's what we need right now
1: mm-hmm. yeah no doubt i was uh, when ronaldo was talking about looking backwards and you mentioned i think lonnie the the australians and dream time and all of that i several years ago, taught a course in classical and medieval rhetorical theory, which, as you might expect, was designed to be sort of that dance through the Greeks and the Romans. But I wasn't really happy with that and found a little book on comparative rhetorical theory, and it drew on all of what you guys were just talking about. There's a whole chapter in there about what they called Australian rhetorical theory and it looked at dream time and dream world, and and there's a lot of futurisms with all of that, and the ways in which a lot of these ancient they weren't really rhetorical theories, but they were like communication theories about how they played with time and space, and you know it's great because all of this pulls itself together, and I think our listeners will find that really interesting. And I know these the podcasts that you mentioned that you're a part of these exhibits. Afro rhythms is that what you said a minute ago we'll put links to that with the podcast episode when it drops so our listeners can go and certainly find all of all of those uh, related materials because I think you're right the really cool part of this from me my perspective is how it really cuts across communication in so many different ways literature media social media old media new media you know it's everywhere you turn along those lines, Ronaldo, you've defined another term that might be of interest, dark speculative futurity. What is that about? Can you tell us how that's related to Afrofuturism and and what that means?
2: Okay, dark speculative futurity was a concept I first introduced at a conference outside of uh, Tel Aviv. I was invited to do a talk over there an Arab scholar had done a review on my anthology and talked about how the anthology made them uh, think about Arab futurity. And so I fly over there at this conference with these young Arab scholars, young Jewish scholars, at, um, I wish I could think of the uh, name of the host at the moment, so I apologize. But one of the things where I talk about dark speculative futurity, I'm saying that is a combination of people of what, 30 40 years ago they used to refer to as the as the third world now almost a couple of generations later each of these cultures has their own concept of what they'd like their future to be like and how they project themselves into the future and i'm saying a combination of forces like uh, globalization the collapse of liberalism as an organizing ideology in the world system a resurgence of nationalism in the last 25 years as a response to things like NAFTA and trade, which did not deliver everything it was supposed to deliver for these populations. And I always tell people, and it kind of starts with this, uh, think about it like this. I, I've never seen anyone talk about this in a speculative way, but I'm sure it's out there. If they look at culturally, so to speak, the first people that have a reaction culturally to what happens before Seattle happens, is the desire for people in Scotland to break away from the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. This is immediately like within a year or two of the movie Braveheart. Right. Okay. Braveheart and they start and it starts awakening. It brings about an awakening in the Scottish population about how they've been dominated. And so they, since then they've had this Scottish independence movement. And so it's snowballed into all these other elements and other cultures. And one of the things I raised about dark speculative futurity, I that it was the desire for cultures to culturally forecast their destinies or futures in relation to climate and even to pursue their own experience in relation to space. Because most people don't know that there's such a thing as space law uh-huh. in terms of how the way space was is supposed to be used in this solar system. And so now uh an American is gonna get a lot of news how countries like India and all these other countries are launching their own satellites or China making its own plans to go to Mars and the Moon. I mean, because we're spending too much time here arguing arguing over QAnon type nonsense. And so one of the things, and I guess it was also my background being a former uh member of the United States Marine Corps during the Cold War. One of the things I observed in the late 80s before I came back to college was when we pulled into Hong Kong, you could get a desktop computer built for you in three days in Hong Kong for like about $100. Right. And my exposure in the American military serving aboard a flagship vessel for two years, I saw how traveling around Asia that basically the United States was only really, the only thing that kept us competitively ahead of people was technology because a lot of times these right. other these soldiers were just as good as ours, and we only had a technological advantage. And so, what they're talking about in certain societies now, whether it's in the Middle East, on parts of Asia, they're like, "Oh yeah, we, yeah, we're going to catch the United States or these other countries within 30 years," because the United States is fundamentally a young country. Yes. China, when they think of time, their culture goes back 5,000 years, so they'll reflect back to some period or whatever, and and adapt some idea from like 2,000 years ago and mix it with technology in the current moment to come up with their political strategy. And other countries are taking their histories along with science fiction and technology and coming up with these alternate perspectives. And that's why I coined that phrase, dark speculative futurity. Most people don't realize why, I don't know, Ethiopia and Egypt or might go to war because up in the upper parts of the Nile, if they build a dam, that's going to, Egypt will be thirsty. And Americans won't understand why East Africa will blow up in a war that can destabilize half the continent over just building a dam. And so that's why it's intelligent for us to give foreign aid. Right. We're not just saying I'm the president of Pittsburgh. And so these are uh, some of the things that dark, speculative futurity deals with. And I mentioned right there, if you look at the tape, what I said in Outside of Haifa at the time, I said, I talked about how the idea of building a wall was stupid because if a virus happens, you're walling yourself. And, you <laughs> and now what do we get? I think now within two years of that talk, now there's a virus and now you have, it is really, COVID is accelerating all the cultural tensions that that the world and the media could hide and show the blatant disparities of treatment between peoples here, whether it's the Palestinians who get no shots or now the disparate and unequal treatment of black and brown people in the United States as it relates to the history of healthcare now. It right. can't be hidden anymore with political sophistry and media and sparkly things. You know, It's really brutally brought out the social inequality that exist in the world right now. And right now they're going to have a heck of a time trying to solve these problems quickly before some other darker forces overtake them.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of uh, Steven Soderbergh's movie about, it's not Outbreak maybe, or it's the Matt Damon, Kate Winslet movie about a virus. Jude Law's in it too. I but that film, in its sort of futurism, didn't really confront the health disparities that COVID has made really palpable. If if I remember correctly, I think it began in like Minnesota somewhere with very white Gwyneth Paltrow and very white Matt Damon. You know, so um, yeah, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, Black speculative arts movement and what that's all about.
2: It started out as a series of meetings. Uh, John Jennings and I first presented these ideas for second wave Afrofuturism in Paris several years ago. And I make a joke about it. I write it in the, about it in the introduction to Cosmic Underground that we published a couple years ago. And I, in the introduction, I explicitly tell John, and, I, and I'm just realizing now because an archivist pointed out to me that a lot of these emails that I had with that I exchange with people with Lonnie or John or whatever need to be archived somewhere for scholars to look at the communication that people will look at them as like letters. I sent a John. So this whole thing starts with an email from me to John. I'm like, how about let's go to Paris next summer and do this thing. And John didn't have anything to do. And so we both go and I present a lot of the stuff that would later become Afrofuturism 2.0. And John presents a lot of the ideas there related to Black Kirby in terms of the influence of the comic artist, Black Kirby, on visual artists. And it was right after that trip that the paper I presented, a young lady I didn't know whose name was Yatasha Womack, who knew John, called me. And I just talked for hours on the phone because she was finishing up her book on Afrofuturism. And I sent her the paper that I presented in Paris and we had a lot of conversations about that. And her book was a hit. And then, following that trip to Paris, because I, one of my logic was, and I think this is where Ken Burns' documentary comes in, and my travel in the military, I argued that if the people in France and Europe were impressed with what we did, that white Americans would be sold because they kind of take a lot of their cues from Europe, you know, because sure. Europeans would tell them jazz was a real thing and the kind of thing. So we get back from there and we have a series of meetings that we called Astro Black meetings in uh, Southern California at LNU and then another meeting called Planet Deep South. And just picture this at an Astro Black meeting. I think the first one there, you had Stephen Barnes, Tananarive Du, Nnedi for In that room of about 60 people, you had about 20 or 30 of them were people that were actors, writers, comic people. People now it probably take, you probably have to have like a Ford Foundation grant to bring <laughs> from those meetings. And then the subsequent meetings we had at Planet Deep South. And of course, the first time Afrofuturism 2.0 was uttered was at a meeting at Emory University in 2013 when I had a dialogue with Alondra Nelson, who was a part of the first wave of the Afrofuturist movement and came out with an important book called Social Text. And during an exchange in the auditorium, I asserted that we were in the era of Afrofuturism 2.0 because of the rise of social media, because it had previously been theorized as a 1.0 concept with just the internet prior to the emergence of social media as a key component. And so out of those conversations, we decided to put on an art event, something that would be unusual in terms of we would take a lot of archival artifacts and put it in a public spot that the entire community would know about and become aware of. And we, we had a total of 80 artists contribute art, several writers, and it became uh, known as the unveiling visions project up in Harlem. And it opened up and stayed open for about 90. It opened in the fall of 2015 and it's open until 2016. And during this time, we were thinking about, man, this is so cool, it needs to keep on going. And it was during this time that I also wrote the manifesto for the movement of uh, Afrofuturism 2.0 and the Black Speculative Arts Movement. I wrote the manifesto, which was published at the close of the movement and published online with the assistance of a young Nigerian British woman named Ifioma Okoye and her group Afrofutures UK. It was published. And so it becomes kind of like the guiding document for the movement, and then it's expanded into a full, you know, beyond that document and published and revised from that point afterwards. And that's how it ends up becoming networked around the world, because I think then the, we had a meeting. The second one we had was in Philadelphia, and that's where Malefi Asante and I had a meeting of the minds of talking about this relationship between afro and, Tr- and it was during the NCA conference in Philadelphia. Wow. In what is that 2016?
1: 2016. Yeah. It was two days after the election.
2: Yes. And I remember all the people from <laughs> California weeping. And yes. at that time, I was just and so so during the time of Trump winning at the time, that's what when we had the Black Speck over at Temple University. And after that meeting, we then went to Canada. And it was such a massive reception in Canada that fall. I mean, I was I mean, I didn't know we were getting covered by the local news, people meeting me at the airport, the founder for BSAM, or they call it BSAM, the real north, as they say in Canada, uh, in Toronto. Yeah. Enti- you know, that was that's like the northern continental branch of the movement of BSAM Canada. Then at, since then, we've taught it, and we've been in Accra, Ghana, Lagos, Nigeria, Johannesburg, Berlin, and so it's become an international movement geared towards really... Thinking beyond the politics of Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, and some of the other ideas that we kind of frankly thought were kind of getting worn out, like the personal is political or some other kind of things that were more from the 70s and 60s. We were like, I think we're engaging ideas such as accelerationism and we're looking at things, you know, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, VR, Futures future study in relation to engaging the futures community in terms of something that Kojo Ishun wrote about years ago in terms of, of Afro, you know, about Afrofuturism. At the time he writes this 20 years ago, needing to have the tools that Lonnie describes very eloquently in terms of developing the tools to forecast the future in our own interest instead of corporate interests. Uh-huh. And so now... It's gonna be announced shortly. Uh, We've been, because Lonnie and I, the last couple of years, we've been getting uh, invitations. We've been dealing with think tanks here in North America. And as I pointed out to Ron Jackson last night in our conversation, most people don't realize communication scholars have been in a scholarly way at the head of the second wave of Afrofuturism that is spreading around the world now. People like other than Lonnie and myself people like Tanisha Taylor, Amber Johnson, and others uh-huh. are really pushing the stuff out here academically in journals and in other scholarship. And so I'm sure you all will probably talk about it after I've retired or something, but, um, <laughs> or after Lonnie and I have retired from the game or whatever, who knows, but, um, uh, it's, it's, we're really, it's been very, really gratifying the way the movement is growing now. And now we're, uh, just going in a lot of interesting directions with it. Lonnie's idea of community futures that he's developing with Ahmed. We have people that are dealing with neurosciences. We have people that are dealing like uh, Philip Butler, who's looking at this with Afrofuturism with AI. We're going way out there with this. And you have two different tracks. I would say you have the people who are the movement scholars, and then you have the people who are just strictly academics trying to kind of plot out what's happening.
1: Lonnie, you strike me as somebody in both camps. You're the academic, but you're also out there doing the podcast, doing the arts in the East Bay and in Oakland and in that area. Is, the, is that true? And is there a. I guess a lot of, I think, the younger scholars that Reynaldo talks about, I think they are looking for that broader community involvement beyond their own academic life. You know what I mean? Do you have any tips? Do you have any soothing words for those young scholars who are thinking about a kind of enriched experience as an
0: academic? Well, you know, like Ronaldo, you know, and he's fantastic at this, but, you know, I'm a weaver of networks and folks. I'm a research affiliate with the Institute for the Future and a research fellow for the Long Now Foundation. So I think finding those types of think tanks to work with and also developing your own ideas and having the confidence to do that is really important. Like for instance, we have are launching the Community Future School with the Museum of Children's Arts in Oakland huh. with the support of the Blue Shield Foundation grant for two years, it's a two-year grant, we hope to you know, augment to that. But we're going to teach 14 to 24-year-olds how to become strategic future forecasters huh. with the emphasis on Afrofuturism and indigenous futurism. And that is really exciting. So we're taking our game Aphorhythms from the Future and other games similar to it too. And these young people will do streams of creating their own game, speculative game, speculative art and speculative fiction with the help of our local artists. See, I wish I was half the artist that like Stacey Robinson is or John Jennings is, but we have really tremendous local artists here in Oakland like Alan Clark, Malik Zenroferu and his wife, Karen Zenroferu, who did the Black Women as God exhibition. We're having artists like that come in and teach us, especially Natrice Gaskins, who, if you haven't heard of her yet, she's gonna break out this year and has been breaking out already. She's doing homages to black culture and black futurity through the use of deep dream artificial intelligence tools. And she's gonna come and teach a couple of sessions with our community future school And we are just so honored to do that. We're working with another group called Ancestral Futures that are gonna teach our kids about black speculative fiction. We have Damon Packwood in Oakland, who's created a whole curriculum around game design for young people to create their own video games around Afrofuturism. And so I think it's what Richard Iton talks about, tracing the black fantastic, listening to the minor key sensibilities of the underground. And you gotta put your ear to the ground because there's people around you doing all sorts of things. Calvin Williams with the Wakanda Dream Studio. He's joining us with creating a Rhythms live version in VR and AR with our game. So this is just really tapping into the resources around you. Now, I, admittedly, I'm tenured now. right? <laughs> you know, I, right. I, I had the freedom to do these things, but you know, you, you work up to that as an assistant professor. You, you sure. make these connections and then you tap into a publishing network around these visions of the future for yourself. Pay attention to the folks around you. You know, create your crew. I mean, the one thing about this too is that our visions of the future are located in the same regions of the mind as memory. Yeah. And the idea is that we have the capacity to see into the future. When we see a scene, we look into it and we see things that aren't quite there yet. We anticipate the future. And this is the way that we create alternative memories of the future to heal trauma. Uh-huh. Things that I've inherited or known about through future studies with the help of Jake Dunnigan and Stuart Candy and others, and really taking this and combining it with Afrofuturism to heal the trauma of 400 years of oppression and to see more and anticipate more of the future. And this is what the Black Spucket of Arts Movement has done for me, not just on an academic level, but on a physical and spiritual level that has really emboldened me to create these ne- connections and networks. And so if I have to say, you know, Ronaldo, if I have another child, I'm going to be naming him after, after him. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it is those legacies where, you know, we're creating something that, you know, just like the Niagara Falls, the, the creation of the NAACP, mm-hmm. the Black Spectative Arts Movement and movements similar to it, are filling that gap for what the 21st century can be and evolving into.
1: And that's a great place to wrap this up. I really want to thank you both. This has been illuminating, fascinating, and I think incredibly helpful for our listeners and for me <laughs> and for everybody to have a greater sense of what Afrofuturism means and what it offers for the for the future and the ways in which we can inject and infuse our classroom experiences with an Afro-futuristic mindset. So thank you, Ronaldo, and thank you, Lonnie, so much for being with us today on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Thank you. Thank you. In NCA news, NCA has just published a profile of the Communication Doctorate, Volume 8, a report based on the National Science Foundation's Survey of Earned Doctorates, or SED. Of the doctoral recipients reported nationally in the 2019 SED, 543 received communication doctorates. Communication doctorates represented a variety of academic specialties, including media studies, communication research, digital communication, and many others. You can read the full report on the NCA website at natcom.org SEDReport2021, all one word. That's natcom.org SEDReport2021. Also in NCA news, visit the NCA website to view free resources for online teaching and learning developed by NCA's Teaching and Learning Council in collaboration with the national office. The page includes advice and tips, as well as free-to-access journal articles. The free-to-access journal articles will be unavailable beginning in March, so be sure to read these timely articles while you can. Visit natcom.org online hyphen teaching to learn more. That's natcom.org online hyphen teaching. And listeners, I sure do hope you'll tune in for a bonus episode of Communication Matters on Valentine's Day. This special episode dives into the effects that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on our relationships, including the differences in our use of dating apps and the acceleration of romantic relationships. Interpersonal communication scholars Liesl Shirabi and Stephanie Tom-Tong will join the podcast to discuss these all-important COVID-19 issues about romantic relationships, just in time for Valentine's Day. So be sure to tune in to this great episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world, are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives.
0: Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director, Trevor Perry-Giles. The podcast, organized at the National Office in downtown Washington, D.C., is produced by Assistant Director of External Affairs and Publications, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Aber. Thank you for listening.